looking at six different psalms, six different genres of psalms, examining what it is that God has to say to us through the worship and the prayers of the people who came before us. And so we hope that you'll be there for that. There's so much to connect with in the book of Psalms, so many emotions that we deal with every day, right now, today. Laughter, sadness, joy, tears, anger, frustration, doubt. There is everything in the book of Psalms, and we're going to look at a little bit of each. So we hope that you'll be here with us for that. Now, today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 and 16. And as you may see on the screen here in a few minutes, the title of this sermon is Climax. And the reason I call it that is because it is the climax of the story that we've looked at so far. Everything in the story has been leading up to this point. And last week, we looked at the story of Peter. In Mark chapter 14, we had Peter actually come here to preach, which that was just an honor that he did that. I am extremely grateful to him for taking time out of his busy schedule. Flights are expensive from Jerusalem, uh, so that was a big deal that he did that. And he told his story from Mark chapter 14. He shared when he remembered that the Passover meal, that last Passover meal he had with Jesus. And here Jesus is, they're taking Passover, this meal that commemorates the freedom from Egypt, the slavery from Egypt that God freed them from, that Moses led them out of. And Jesus takes this time to do a few things that are kind of different. He tells the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. He doesn't say who it is. He doesn't say the person by name, but he tells them that he will be betrayed. And all the disciples are looking around at one another wondering, well, who's going to do it? Is it going to be me? It certainly won't be me. And then on top of that, Jesus moves a little bit farther and he takes this Passover meal and he switches it up. He turns it on its head and he tells the disciples that from now on, whenever they take this meal, it's not going to be about Egypt. It's not going to be about crossing the Red Sea. It's not going to be about Moses. It's going to be about what he is about to do for them. The bread will be his body that is broken. The blood, the wine will be the blood that is shed for you and for me and for his disciples. He totally changes the idea. And then he goes a little bit farther and he says that all of his disciples will abandon him. They will all deny him. And specifically, he says, Peter will deny him three times. Peter thinks, surely not. I'm not going to deny you. The other guys might deny you, but I definitely won't. I don't see what the big deal is. I don't see what the problem is. Jesus, you can count on me. I've proven that you can count on me, right? And Jesus says, no, Peter. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And you'll be one of them. And then as soon as that happens, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this garden, we see that even though God is fully man and fully God at the same time, we see the humanity of Jesus really coming out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because we see him praying. And we see him praying with worry and fear and stress. Knowing what awaits him in Jerusalem. Knowing that there is a cross with his name on it. Waiting for him in Jerusalem. And he prays, God, take this cup away from me. Don't make me go through this. Don't make me deal with this suffering. Don't make me deal with this torture, with this pain. But you know what, God? Not my will, but yours. And so Jesus faces down the cross that he knows is waiting for him. And then Peter told us about the anger that he felt when he saw Judas 
and a band of scribes and elders and priests come with pitchforks and torches to capture Jesus. And they seize Jesus. And the disciples try to get him out of it. They try to free him. They try to somehow fight back and get Jesus out of this mess that he got himself into. But Jesus just gives up. He just lets himself be taken away. Doesn't put up any fight whatsoever. And Peter, of course, like we talked about, he's viewing this as a train wreck that you just can't take your eyes off of. You know it's going to be terrible, but you're still just, you just got to watch. And so he follows along at a distance as Jesus is brought on trial before the religious leaders, knowing that things weren't going to end well. And when that happens, as Peter is following along, trying to overhear what Jesus's fate might be, he denies him three times, exactly the way Jesus said he would. And that's where we left off last week. We left off with a broken, mourning, weeping Peter over the decision that he made, over his denial of Christ, and we see Jesus being brought before Pilate. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Mark chapter 15. We're going to look at Mark chapters 15 and 16, not every single verse, but getting the main idea of the last two chapters of Mark. We have Bibles scattered throughout the room on the bottoms of chairs. If you want to follow along there, we'll have verses up on the screen, hopefully here in a few minutes. And we'll do a great job looking at these two chapters. So starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. So Jesus is brought to Pilate, and Pilate is the governor or the prefect in this area. The governor or prefect of the Roman Empire overseeing this little district of the empire. And Pilate's job, his main responsibility, is to keep the peace. Avoid any type of restlessness, avoid any type of uprising, avoid any type of rebellion. Just manage what you have there. That's Pilate's main priority. Maintain the peace. And so Jesus is brought before him, and Pilate asks him this question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And look at Jesus' response. He says, you have said so. This cryptic response. It's almost like Jesus is affirming that, yes, I am the king of the Jews, but maybe not in the way that you think I am. Because my kingdom is not like yours. My kingdom is not about wealth and power and using people for your own selfish gain. That's not what I'm interested in. That's not my main priority. But in a sense, yes, I am the king of the Jews, just not in the way that you think I am. Moving on in verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. If you're in Jesus' shoes, this is your opportunity to somehow get yourself off the hook. This is your opportunity to somehow justify what you did, defend your actions, explain that this was all just some big misunderstanding and that you really didn't mean to do any harm and you're not going to cause any problems. You're not going to cause any violence. You're just teaching and preaching and healing people. And Pilate, I promise I'm not doing anything that I would ever want to step on your toes because Pilate holds Jesus's fate in his hands. 
Jesus' life is hanging on a string that Pilate is holding. And Pilate can just let go. And this is Jesus' opportunity to get out of it. This is Jesus' opportunity to somehow save his own skin. And what does he do? He doesn't say a word. He says nothing. Isaiah chapter 53 was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene. Hundreds of years before he was ever baptized by John. And Isaiah 53 verse 7 says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There's a story happening here that is bigger than anyone in the story realizes. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear, but it's happening. There's a bigger narrative that is taking place right before these people's very eyes. But then again, maybe it's coincidence. Maybe the connection with Isaiah 53 is just some crazy similarity that really isn't intended, that just happened to work out that way. Not intentional, just a coincidence. Well, verse 6 of Mark chapter 15. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So you kind of got a feel for Pilate here. Pilate is in this rock in this hard place. On the one hand, it says that he perceives that the chief priests and the religious leaders, they only have Jesus in this position because they feel threatened by him. They only have him there because he's challenging the status quo. He feels as though they, he might be rocking the boat. And they're envious of the following that Jesus is starting to gather. They're envious of the fact that people are starting to not listen to them so much and instead listen to Jesus. And Pilate's no dummy. Pilate realizes this. He knows how these guys are. But you kind of got to feel for him because on the one hand, he knows Jesus is innocent. But on the other hand, he knows that if he doesn't do something to Jesus, there's going to be a riot. And he's supposed to keep the peace. And does he really want to be the guy who has to answer to Caesar as to why things didn't happen the way they were supposed to that weekend. And so Pilate's looking at a situation of either, A, I save this innocent, but really insignificant person that I have no connection with, or I risk getting chewed out by Caesar, which is not someone you want to get chewed out by. So Pilate comes up with a little compromise. He has this tradition where every year around this time, he will grant amnesty to a prisoner. He will let his prisoner go free, even though they're guilty. And so Pilate says, all right, guys, tell you what. Let's say this Jesus guy is guilty. Let's say that I give him a slap on the wrist, and then I just let him go free. I let him go free. You know he's innocent. I know he's innocent. Slap on the wrist, and he goes free. Everybody wins, right? Jesus gets punished. Pilate doesn't have an innocent man's blood on his conscience. But look at the chief priests. They refuse, even when Pilate suggests that they have to choose between harmless Jesus 
and murderer Barabbas, they still choose harmless Jesus. They want him to suffer. And Pilate's probably thinking, guys, you know, Jesus might be, get, might be getting on your nerves, but at least you don't have to worry about your safety with Jesus roaming the streets. With Barabbas, this guy's a murderer. Do you really want him going free instead of Jesus? And they say, yep, sure do. We'd rather have Jesus punished, and we'll take our chances with Barabbas. And what's ironic here is that this story with Jesus and Barabbas, when you really think about it, it's a microcosm of the gospel itself. Because what you have here is the innocent man getting punished while the guilty man goes free. And when you really think about it, we're kind of like Barabbas. We're guilty. We deserve punishment, but guess what? Jesus can take our punishment, and we can go free. And the name Barabbas actually means son of God. And what's ironic is that as Barabbas goes free, the son of God is punished. And through this, through Christ's blood, through his death, we can become sons and daughters of God. This really is a bird's eye view of the entire gospel itself. Look in verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate is put with these two options. And he chooses to save his own skin rather than save the innocent Jesus. And Pilate, he's done all he could do, right? He tried to maybe give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. He tried to give him some breaks. He tried to give him the opportunity to defend himself. He tried to get Jesus out of this by suggesting Barabbas, and that didn't really work. Pilate's done all he can do. Can't blame the guy. And so Jesus is scourged. And he's led away to be crucified. Back to that Isaiah 53 passage, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? I have to wonder, does Pilate have any idea the role that he is playing in the most important event in history? Because here you have Pilate, and this is just an average day. Yeah, this thing with Jesus is a little bit weird. And yeah, he's trying to just get this taken care of. That way he can go home and sleep at night and get back to regular life. But he probably has no idea the role that he is playing in this story that is so much bigger than he can even imagine. So Jesus is scourged. He's led away by oppression and judgment. Verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. 
and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus is mocked by the soldiers. They sarcastically call him a king. They sarcastically give him a cloak of purple, which would have been the color of royalty. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53 says that this guy has no majesty about him. Nothing impressive about him. And what we see in Mark chapter 15 is that the soldiers mockingly pretend that Jesus has some sort of majesty about him. They mockingly say that he is royalty, sarcastically giving him this crown of thorns, sarcastically giving him this royal cloak. And the only thing worse than not having majesty and not having royalty is people sarcastically pretending that you do. That's exactly what happens to Jesus here. In verses 21 through 32, we see the crucifixion of Jesus. And we see Simon of Cyrene, this guy who just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, walking by as the procession is heading to Golgotha, the place where the crucifixion would occur. And Simon's minding his own business, and he has to carry the crossbar of Jesus up to Golgotha. At this point, Jesus, after being scourged, is so weak that he would be considered in critical condition by today's medical terminology. The scourging would have involved no less than 39 lashes with some sort of whip with a jagged piece of bone or glass or metal tied on the end. They did it on both sides, and some scourgings led to the point where you could even see bone. That's how bad it was. So Jesus, understandably, can't carry his cross up to Golgotha, The soldiers want to speed the process up so they can get home and eat dinner. So they have Simon. Wrong place, wrong time. He has to carry the cross. And just like Pilate, I wonder, does Simon have any idea the role that he is playing in the most important story in history? For Simon, he's probably thinking, you know what, this is just a bad day. I really don't like the fact that I had to do that. I wish I would have left five minutes earlier or five minutes later. Then I could have avoided the whole thing. It was an inconvenience for Simon. Does he realize the story that he's taking a part of? Probably not. So they take him up to Golgotha. They offer him wine mixed with myrrh, but he refuses it. They hang him on this cross and they take his clothes and they divide it among them. The soldiers do. Maybe they can make a few bucks off of it. Maybe they can give it to their kid once you get the blood washed off, of course. Just a means to an end for them. They don't think anything of it. They sarcastically hang a sign over his head that says King of the Jews, just like Pilate said he was. And everyone is mocking him. You know, all those times that there were confrontations between the religious leaders and Jesus, the religious leaders left with their tail between their legs, looking silly, thinking that they just got showed up. But guess what? This time they get to show Jesus up. They're the ones who are mocking him. And there's no coming down from a cross. They've finally won. They finally repaid Jesus for all those times that he made them look foolish. They win. At least it appears 
that they win. Verses 33 through 41, we see the death of Jesus. He's crucified at the sixth hour, which would have been 9 a.m., and he passes away at noon. And from noon to three, the whole sky is dark. A little bit out of the ordinary. Not something you see often. And as he's dying, people offer him wine. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which just confirms that the religious leaders have won, right? Because even Jesus admits in this last few moments that God has forsaken him. The plan has failed. The religious leaders win. Pretty clear. There's no getting down from that cross. It's been a few hours. Nothing's going to change. No one's going to save him. And then all of a sudden, he breathes his last. That last breath escapes Jesus' lungs, and he dies. The Son of God dies. And when that happens, the curtain of the temple, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the common part of the temple, is torn in part. It's ripped in two. The separation that kept people away from God is gone from top to bottom, torn in two. There were witnesses when this all happened. A centurion, the guy who's overseeing this crucifixion, making sure that everything meets code, he says, surely this man was the son of God. Women are there too. Mary Magdalene, another Mary. They see this happening. They're probably thinking the same thing. It was a good ride. It was an adventure. It was fun while it lasted. But we lost. Maybe. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 say, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The bystanders think that Jesus loses. But Isaiah 53 says maybe there's more going on than the people realize. Maybe there's more going on than even the centurion realizes. Starting in verse 42, when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Another random character enters the story. First you have Pilate, then you have Simon of Cyrene, and now you have Joseph of Arimathea. 
Joseph was a respected member of the council, the very council that had Jesus condemned. And so he's sticking his neck out there by trying to give Jesus a proper burial. He's risking his reputation with Pilate. He's risking his reputation with his fellow religious leaders. But it says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And you know, maybe he had held out hope this entire time that Jesus was what he was looking for. As a member of this council, he'd always thought to himself, you know, there's got to be something more to this. There's got to be more than just these 600-something commandments. There's got to be more than just these rituals. Is this really all it is? And then he sees Jesus, and he thinks that maybe this is the breakthrough. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is when things are finally going to become clear and everything's going to make sense. Maybe this is what I'm looking for. And then he dies. Maybe Joseph is thinking, you know what? He failed, but he gave it the old college try. He's worthy of at least a proper burial. And so Joseph, a wealthy man, gives his tomb to Jesus. Isaiah 53 Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Made his grave with a rich man. He's buried in a rich man's tomb. Hmm. Interesting. But he's dead. Everyone sees it. The tomb is closed. Nothing more to see here. What's done is done. Look at verse 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? You know, as I read that now, I look and I think about how ironic that conversation is as they're heading to the tomb. Who's going to roll the stone away? There's no way we could roll it away. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They show up at the tomb, and Jesus isn't there. There's an angel there that tells him he's risen. How do you think the witnesses are going to respond? We'll see that in a minute. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. These witnesses may not even be aware 
of what's happening right before their eyes. But the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 is happening right in front of them. Because this is a story that goes way back, way before Jesus was baptized, way before John the Baptist. This is a story that goes back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are told that the serpent will have his head crushed. And he'll strike his heel. But nevertheless, the serpent's head will be crushed. This is a story that goes back to Genesis 12, when Abram is told that every family in the world will be blessed through his offspring. This is a story that goes back to 2 Samuel 7, when David is told that one of his offspring will have a kingdom that will last forever. It goes back to Isaiah 53, when we see this image of a suffering servant that seems to have nothing going for him, and yet what his death does means everything. It goes back to Daniel 7, when Daniel says that a son of man will have a kingdom and a dominion that will never fail. The whole point here is this is a story that has been encompassing all of history, leading up to this very moment. Everything we've read in Mark has been leading up to this very moment. The moment where a stone is rolled away. Where many are accounted righteous because of the death of one man. One not-so-ordinary man. A man who was perfect. A man who was fully man, yet fully God at the same time. This is the story that has encompassed every piece of Scripture. Every piece of Scripture has looked forward to this moment. And every part of history now, in a sense, looks back to that moment. It all comes down to this time. And look at Mark's conclusion. Verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb... For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, if you're following along in a Bible, you may notice that right after that verse, there is some sort of little message or some sort of little bracket that says something along the lines of some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. What that means is that most manuscripts, the earliest copies of the Gospel of Mark that we have, End at verse 8. That's it. That's the end of the gospel. Verse 8. Now, why would you end a gospel with the witnesses running away scared? You don't get an explanation of what it means. You don't get an explanation of what the cross did. You don't get an explanation of why the tomb was empty, really, besides he is risen. Why would Mark end it right there? Really, because the story has already been written. The ending is all over scripture. The ending is in Isaiah 53 when it says that many will be accounted righteous from his death. And as you look back in the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark, what does Mark call Jesus? He calls him the Son of God. This is a story that had already been written. This was not coincidence. This was not things just happening to fall into place at the right time. This was the story that God was writing. And it's the story that God is still writing because we look forward to the day when Jesus returns. In that long ending of Mark, look at verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
And then verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is at the right hand of God right now. And we look forward to the day when he returns and brings his kingdom with him so we can truly see it for what it is. It's here, but it's kind of not here. There's this weird dichotomy going on where on the one hand, the kingdom is here. Christ has won. Sin has been defeated. Many can be accounted righteous, but at the same time, there's something missing. There's something missing. We look around at the world and say, is this really God's kingdom here right now? And the answer is, kind of, not yet. But the beauty of that is that you and I are invited to be a part of it right now. Pilate unknowingly was a part of a huge story that he could never wrap his mind around. Simon of Cyrene was a part of a huge story that he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Joseph of Arimathea was part of a huge story, and he probably never even realized it. And the beauty that you have and that I have is that we see the story for what it is, and we can be a part of it. Two people have made that decision to be a part of it this morning, Michael and Kelly Corrigan. And after the service, they're going to stand up here, and I'm going to ask them to repeat their profession of faith, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they trust him as their Lord and Savior. They've accepted that invitation, and that invitation is being extended to every one of you. I hope you'll take it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the story that you've written, that is being written as we wait for Christ to return. And God, thank you for the fact that you give us the opportunity to be a part of it, that you have a role for us to play in this huge story that we don't even always fully understand. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the message of Isaiah 53, that you've taken your sins upon your son. He took the punishment that we deserve. He took the penalty, the penalty that we can't pay. Thank you for that. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your spirit that works in us and through us, changing our hearts and changing our minds to help us become more like you. God, thank you for the story of Mark. Thank you for what we've read so far, but most of all, thank you for what you're still writing and what you're still going to do in our lives and in the life of Prairie View. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. When the service is over, we're going to have a couple of our elders standing on the side of the room, and they would be more than willing to talk to you about becoming a follower of Christ, making the decision that Michael and Kelly have to be baptized, to start that journey, to be a part of the story that God is writing. I hope you'll make that decision.